I'm Gemma Schneider, and this is Where Are They Now? Where Are They Now? is a WHRB original series in which I take a deep dive into the insights and experiences of Harvard alumni who have made an impact. They are trailblazers who have touched the world in ways that they could never have planned for, expected, or imagined when they were students. And now, they are eager to tell their unique stories for the benefit of current students and our wider community of listeners out there. This series is made possible by One in a Billion Productions with Mabel Chan, our production partner and sponsor. One in a Billion is a nonprofit educational media company whose mission is to foster Asian voices and deepen cross-cultural understanding through podcasts and film productions, blogs, and network events. One in a Billion's founder, Mabel Chan, is also a Harvard alum, class of 93, from the Graduate School of Arts and Sciences. She'll be joining us as a regular commentator and co-host on the podcast. In this episode, I am speaking with Neil Shubin, a paleontologist, evolutionary biologist, and popular science writer. Dr. Shubin earned his PhD in organismic and evolutionary biology at Harvard in 1987. He made headlines in 2004 when he co-discovered Tiktaalik, a fossil of a creature with traits found in both fish and tetrapods. Dr. Shubin has since published two popular science novels, the best-selling Your Inner Fish, which was made into an Emmy award-winning PBS series, and The Universe Within, The Deep History of the Human Body. Raised outside of Philadelphia, Dr. Shubin has always had an affinity for discovery and exploration. I can promise that you'll hear his infectious energy pulsating throughout today's episode. At times, you may feel like you're traveling with him to places as far away and frigid as the Canadian Arctic, where adventurers are known to risk facing encounters with polar bears. We also probe the challenges and failures that Dr. Shubin has faced as a scientist and writer through the years. And we talk about how his landmark discovery of Tiktaalik has dramatically altered the trajectory of his personal and professional life. It was invigorating to have this conversation with Dr. Shubin and to review just how much he's managed to learn, grow, and discover since his early grad school days. At the end of this episode, our podcast contributing commentator and co-host Mabel Chan will share her thoughts about this interview commentary about what Harvard can't teach you that you will find. Hi, Dr. Shubin. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to have this conversation. And I wanted to start off with a question that is kind of a loaded question, but you can do with it what you want to make of it. Um, It's inspired by Brene Brown, whose podcast I listen to and who opens with this. But Tell me as simply and as truly as you can, what's your life story? Oh, that's just, it's really short, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, my life story, let's see. So uh, I've just been somebody who always loved exploring. I had passions about, you know, exploring in science and travel and so forth. And I've been fortunate enough to find a job that allows me to explore and allows me to explore with other people. So in a nutshell, that's <laughs> that's what it is. It's been about exploration in science and life and food and love and everything else. Mm-hmm. And did that love for exploration, is that what drove you towards paleontology and also coming to grad school at Harvard? Oh, definitely. I mean, I, you know, it's, the funny thing was I, I didn't know what field I wanted to, um, to work in. 
uh, when I was a high school student, I loved astronomy, I loved geology, I liked archaeology, I liked anthropology, kind of a lot of ologies. I was just really sort of <laughs> captivated by that. And my parents were, uh, and astronomy, I should say. So my parents were really cool with it. They let me explore kind of everything. When I when I got into like the moon, they bought me a small telescope, or they they always encouraged you know, my, my curiosities, um, you know, so that by the time I came to Harvard in 1982, I knew I wanted to study evolution. I was really interested in uh, the great transformations in the history of life. You know, how did fish evolve to walk on land? How did birds evolve to fly? You know, how did these huge steps happen? And, you know, so I was really interested in sort of uncovering new evidence about showing about how these things happen. You led your very first fossil expedition as a Harvard graduate student in Nova Scotia. I did. So that was over 25 years ago. When you first went, what did you think this would be like? Well, what happened was, first off, I went to, um, I came to Harvard to study the origin of mammals. I wasn't interested in fish at the time. And so when when I had the idea to work in Nova Scotia, the idea was, to find the earliest mammal or the earliest, you know, or the reptiles most closely related to them. And these would be, we thought, in rocks around 200 million years old. And I wanted to lead an expedition just to sort of, just to do it by myself. Um, And I got support from the Museum of Comparative Zoology at Harvard, which had a small fund that supported these things at the time. And over time, we were were very successful, despite uh, the fact that I felt we wouldn't be. I, you know, I had insecurity sort of sitting on my shoulder the whole time as this was my, my first attempt. But yeah, it, it worked out really great. And um, it gave me the bug to do more. So is that how you would characterize kind of that hesitation? Is that what you would characterize as like your initial going into it, thinking that things might go wrong? Yeah, well, in those days, I no longer have that sort of thing. But the um, but yeah, my initial hesitation was I, since I'd never done this before and it never had been successful, you know, I wanted to make, I wanted it to go well. Um, and I sort of fretted over every decision, probably more than necessary. Mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting that you said you went in with that initial hesitation and you've sort of learned through the years that there are failures and you learn from them. And that's kind of a growth mindset. And you said that this trip did have some of its own successes. So what was that like going in with that feeling, perhaps nervousness, perhaps seeing that some of the choices you made we're going to unfold in, in not exactly the way that you planned, but then seeing that there were positives that did come out of that trip. Was that an empowering experience? What was it for you like? Oh, yeah. Well, I say at the time, so we weren't successful until we got home. So what happened was we spent that first summer, looked, we found a layer of rocks that had some fossils in them, but they're like bits and pieces of stuff. And so I'm like, oh, okay, well, let's just bring some of these bits and pieces home. And um, so we went home and we drove home from Nova Scotia you know, I was thinking, well, that was a bust, you know, what's, what's, what's next? <laughs> you know? And so, um, but about four months later, one of the little rocks that we found, one of the preparators, Bill Amaral, worked on it. And it turned out it had a little, um, uh, a little jaw of a creature, which was very closely related to mammals. So in that, that's when I realized we were successful. But when we left the field, I was, I was most definitely not successful. I was feeling, okay, maybe, uh, maybe there's going to be something else in my future. Yeah. And, and so I guess that's interesting, like the process of actually walking away, thinking something's a total bust and then seeing it wasn't exactly the bust that you thought it was way later on. Um, have you had other experiences like that since then? 
Oh, all the time. I mean, that's routine, you know? So that's in the, the, the difference between me then and me now, like 26 years later, is I know that's going to happen. I know what we're going to, we're going to, if we're going to be successful, most likely be successful in the laboratory, because you usually don't make the, it's rare, it's happened, and there's a prominent case where it did happen, but um, you rarely make that huge discovery in the field simply because you, um, you can't really prepare the fossil. You can't, you, have, you only can bring home like the rocks, the fossil embedded in the rocks. So a lot of it is still hidden by the time you bring it home. But we'll, we'll know after six months at home whether we were successful or not. So it's all part of the process. Another part of the process that I'm curious about is you've spoken about this moment when you're in the Arctic where your partner, Jason, he didn't return home at first. It's, it's a scary moment in the book, Your Inner Fish, that you wrote. Um, and it's kind of like this, this long awaiting moment. And I'm wondering if that was typical of your trips, that fear, trepidation, and whether they're rare or not, what do you tell yourself in those types of moments of fear? Um, so that particular example was a situation where we took a college student with us um, and he came back late from camp. And the reason why he came back late from camp, and we were working in the Arctic, so there's a lot of ways to get hurt, you know, not the, not the least of which are, you know, polar bears roaming around. But in the case of Jason, it didn't, it only went sideways for about an hour because we were ready to go. He was late. We were ready to go on a search um, for him. And we kind of knew the general area where he was. So I wasn't overly worried that we wouldn't find him. I was just worried about what happened to him. Um, and I wanted to get there reasonably quickly. Um, but, you know, again, you want to be careful about that, too. Yeah, and, uh, but it all turned out well. He came running into the tent and he found a fossil site and the fossil site turned out to be uh, you know, really fabulous for us. Yeah, a nice surprise. I, I guess another question I have then is in scenarios where it's not just one hour of waiting and fear and it does extend and it's longer and it's larger, how do those situations differ? Well, there you have a team that you really got to keep focused on the problem. So a good example of that was in 2002, we had a massive uh, glacial windstorm come in and start ripping up our camp, literally ripping it up, taking the tents and blowing away or, you know, you know, and, and you know, when you lose food in the Arctic out of the tent, that's really can be really bad. So the idea was really kind of to get organized, get focused and try to, you know, keep the team, we had a team of four people at that point, you know, keep them focused on the job of, you know, trying to keep the main tent up. So we let the other tents, some of the smaller tents go, but really focus on, you know, priorities. I mean, so that was about a an eight hour blow. And I was very tired at the end of that one. That was eight hours of kind of trying to keep tents up and things. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you talk about also like composing the team and just having to stay calm and be in order. You've spoken in the past about like being a scared kid who wouldn't go camping in high school. So does he ever come out in those moments? Um, yeah, sure. I'm definitely, I mean, I'm still a kid. I mean, so, you know, I, I'm the last person you think would be leading these crazy expeditions, <laughs> right? I guess, I mean, you know, sometimes it comes out, but I'm, I'm, you know, it pays to be cautious and I, I am extremely cautious. You know, people know me as a real planner. I'm always planning on different contingencies and, you know, I usually get it wrong, but you still have to plan. You know, as, as Eisenhower said, you know, plans are essential, but planning is useless because, you know, the facts on the ground usually change things. But you sort of need those plans to re be really be able to make good decisions. Yeah. I, um, you've written also about kind of the serendipitous nature of paleontology, that blend of 
planning and chance that you're tapping into right now. So something that I've always wondered is there's definitely something beautiful and kind of exciting about the fact that there's this luck and serendipity involved, but what are the potential drawbacks of this fact? So sort of that it's not entirely contingent upon how hard you plan. Yeah, I mean, so basically what I try to do is maximize the odds of success, but I can't guarantee it, right? So I have to sort of live with that. And what advice over the years have you tried to offer to people who are kind of new to it and could be disheartened, I guess, by the fact that they're not seeing that success or not getting it right away and they have planned and all of that? Oh, I mean, the the biggest lesson that I've learned is patience. Patience with yourself, patience with your colleagues, patience with the process. You know, in some of the projects I've had, it took us five or six years to be successful. You know, so that's the kind of patience I've learned. Um, But there's other kinds of patience that are important. I mean, as I said earlier, patience with yourself is huge. You know, allow yourself to fail a little bit. Yeah, no, I think that you tap into this theme of failure so often and something that I that I you you spoke a little to this already but I think just a broad simple question about failure is why has it become so important for you to talk about failure and to sort of normalize it well number one I'm very good at failure (laughs) (laughs) so I've made a career but most people but nobody knows about my failures if you know about my successes right so um um, then that's the, that's the good news. But I think, you know, as it relates to something I said before, which is, that is, I mean, if you are, are to learn and live a life of learning, whether it's in books, in the field, under a microscope, you're going to be pushed, you're going to need to push yourself outside your comfort zone. And you're going to fail, you know, and I tend to learn more from failures than successes. You know, successes, you know, you pat yourself on the back and you're kind of done. Um, failures, you're still hungry. In fact, you're probably hungrier. And so to keep that hunger, yeah, so. Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, I, I think any failure, like whether whatever domain it's in, whether it's a personal one, professional one, academic, it causes you to kind of look within. And I think, I mean, when I think about my own moments of failure and letdown and upset, I think it could go one of two ways. There are definitely some that I look back on where like, I wish I engaged with it differently. And I feel like I did not navigate that as well as I could. And then there, there are ones where I definitely feel like I, have grown and come back from it in ways that I'm particularly proud of. I guess I wonder either side of the spectrum for you, if there are moments of failure that stick out, either one that you engaged with that you wish you engaged with in a different way and or came back from in a different way or ones that, that come to mind in memory that are quite the opposite. Yeah, no, one that sort of stuck was I led a set of expeditions to Morocco in like 1990, 92, 93. And those never really amounted to much. Um, and I kept on trying. I think what I did in that case is I, when I, we first went, I think I chose the wrong area. So we adjusted to a new area. Um, but then what I didn't account for was that in that area, there were sort of local political struggles among the villages that didn't allow us on the land. So I, I kept on finding new problems that I couldn't surmount, you know? So in that case, you know, no matter how much I adapted and adjusted, I just wasn't going to get it done. And so we went for three years and then to make the hard call, you know, sometimes you have to say, uh, you know, enough, 
And that's what I did in that case. Yeah. No, it's interesting because there's no like one formula or one way to go for how to deal with failure. Um, it's it's hard. And it's a very like personal and individual process too. Yes, it is. It is. And it depends on the context as well. So. Another question that I have kind of about some of the challenges on these expeditions and trips is that when you go on a fossil expedition, you're so far away. Like I can't imagine myself, like I'm such a homebody when I go away for, to school for like a few months and I know I'm coming back for the holidays. Like I miss everyone. I miss my house. I miss my family. For me, just the person I am, I can't imagine being away from some of the things that I've become so accustomed to and comfortable with for so long. So what do you miss the most when you're on those expeditions and, and how do you deal with it? What do you tell yourself? Well, it depends how long it is. So like a trip to Antarctica would be three months and, you know, you might have email, but when you're in the field, when you're at the base, you might have email, but it's really slow. It's kind of like old modems. Um, uh, when you're in the field, there's no internet. There's no, um, you know, you have a sat phone, but you can't have long conversations and you're there, you know, from Thanksgiving through New after New Year's. So you're missing a lot of the major holidays. You know, so in that case, what you're missing most are family, of course, because that's a time of, those are those are family times of year, times of the year, and a lot happens, particularly if you have kids. So obviously, that's the um, that's the big one. Um, and you know, the other things you miss, I guess, um, I don't miss the internet. I got to tell you, being away from the internet from for six weeks is just a it's a gift. <laughs> it really is. Although the first few weeks, in the first few days, I should say. When you get on site and there's no internet, there's no cell coverage, there's no wireless coverage, there's no nothing coverage, you know, and you have your phone, and your phone's basically a camera and a GPS, you know. So you, what you notice is people sort of reflexively pick up their phone and start fiddling with it. That's what I was thinking. It's a habit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's a habit. It becomes a total yeah. fidget. But then they, then you know, it takes them a few days. Then they get, then they, um, then they get rid of it. Um, you know, I'm a bit of a gourmand, so I do miss food, although I, I focus a lot on food and our expeditions. Um, I don't miss the news. That was kind of, you know, when we were there in 2019, that was actually kind of a gift as well to be cut loose out of that. Um, but I can say it's family, really family and human connection outside of the, the team. Um, it can be a disconnect. Things happen at home sometimes when you're in the field, you know, and uh, you're not part of that. And, you know, that, that, that does, that does, that does thing, you know. Yeah, I could, I could imagine with the news that on one hand, like you said, that there's something nice about being disconnected from it, but I could imagine how jarring it would be if something totally, like, I mean, especially now where things are changing so quickly in so little time, like if you had been on an expedition and came back to, I mean, I guess you're not this disconnected, but if you would come back to a world of coronavirus, you know what I mean? Like that would be terrifying. <laughs> Oh yeah, I mean, so no, they, they, so you know, we have radio contact with the base every day, and if there's a yeah. big piece of news, they would tell us. Um, but in the, but there's never really been a huge. Well, there have been some big pieces of news, but the, um, you know, or things happen to people's families. So one of my colleagues, you know, father passed away in the field. You know, those are those are really challenging things. Um, you know, and then we have to talk about well, how can we get? Do you want to go home? Can we get you home? That kind of thing. And it's not always possible, honestly. In that case, it actually was not possible because we were in Antarctica and there was no plane that could get to us. So, uh, yeah. So, you know, you learn to deal with life, you know, I mean, that's what it's about. And in moments like that, I guess you all really learn to lean on each other. You must become so close. 
You do. I mean, so one of the things is you learn, and then when I take a, you know, a field crew, I mean, I, it's, I take people who know how to, to deal in those situations, you know, who know when to be close and who know when to be distant, because there's times you want to be distant too, to give people space, you know, so and there's time for closeness, which is the one I talked about before, you know, and you just need people who have that sort of um, emotional IQ, um, you know, that who can, who can, who can deal with that and, and, and behave in those circumstances. So I guess you know everyone, or you know a little, at least a little bit about them before you go on the expedition with them. Usually, I know a lot about them. So when I take a new person, I usually take one or two and have a lot of veterans with along the line. So I don't take a whole lot of rookies, in this, you know, in, in one batch because that could be challenging. What was it like when you were that new person? Oh, I was great. I was, I was the complete. I was just like, I, my mind was blown. I mean, my first major polar expedition was my last year of graduate school at Harvard. The curator of vertebrate paleontology at the time was a professor named Farish Jenkins. And Farish invited me to be one of four people on his first team to East Greenland in search of early dinosaurs. And I was a student and I was with three veteran paleontologists who had more years of, you know, in the field uh, than I had years <laughs> total <laughs> at that time. Um, you know, I learned from them and I would get frustrated. Why are they finding the fossils? I'm not that kind of stuff. But I, you know, I remember that, that enthusiasm I had and how everything was this giant mystery. So it's a long time since then, but your discovery of Tiktaalik, I feel like we can't talk about your work without talking about Tiktaalik itself, which for listeners is the transitional fossil that, that Dr. Shubin co-discovered. But what was the biggest change in your life after the discovery of Tiktaalik? Oh, there are a couple. I mean, the the biggest one is I had um, more of an audience to talk to about science. Tiktaalik rosea is, you know, is a fish with arms and legs. Uh, it's a very visual discovery. You know, I can show it to people and they're like, what? That's a fish. No, it's not. It's a, it's a you know, it's a crocodile. They talk about it like that. Um, you know, it's a very visual sort of thing. And I could tell the story of its discovery, right? So that's been pretty much a gift of discovering that because it was a very high profile discovery when we made it. And then I wrote the book, Your Inner Fish, um, soon afterwards, and that found a nice audience. And so that, you know, built on the Tiktaalik thing and then, you know, opened up audiences even broadly, more broadly. And then we did, then I hosted the three-part PBS miniseries, you know, Your Inner Fish, which aired in, I think, 2014. And, um, and that opened up a broader audience still. So, you know, that's been really invigorating for me. Yeah, I mean, it's a complete shift in some ways because suddenly you are engaging even more with the general public and it's an aspect of your work that has become public in a sense were you ready for that when it came or you know did you adapt to it quickly was it hard at first kind of scary oh no i mean i'm you know like i said you know all you learn when you're outside your comfort zone and this and that is, is most definitely outside my comfort zone you know and so um you know, when Tiktaalik came out, it was the front page lead story in the New York Times and all these other play out outlets. It was on the Colbert Report multiple times. It was, you know, it was major news. And, you know, the following three weeks were just, you know, I just felt there was a spotlight on us. You know, so that led one thing led to another, led to another, all of them outside my comfort zone. Um, but, you know, then they've taken me to a, a, a different place I could would never have imagined you know, 30 years ago, I'd be today, you know? Yeah, it's interesting because I almost noticed a parallel between how you're talking about 
this new sphere and when you were first you know, going on your first expeditions, when you were first entering the field and you were learning how there's this exhilaration. And I, I wonder, is that something that you have noticed about your journeys that when there is something somewhat novel about it, I mean, there's definitely a comfort and something nice about being familiar with the field and just knowing what you're doing, but then being thrown something or entering something that is completely new. Is there an invigoration to that for you? Of course, yeah. The new, it's always so invigorating. And something new that forces me to shift gears in ways that are unexpected. Yeah, that's great. Because, you know, that's something to be welcomed, not something to be scared of. Although you can be scared of it, but it's definitely something to be welcomed. Um, yeah, love that. And that's kind of what it's all about. Is there anything new lately? Yes, we've got some new stuff in the lab. Uh, I can't really talk about it yet, but um, particularly on radio, but we made a new fossil discovery, which I'm really excited about. Uh, and oh, that really, that's awesome. Yeah, so I, I was surprised by that. Um, yeah, so that's that's been that was really good. And that happened during the lockdown when we weren't able to be in the lab. What happened is we scanned a block, and that block had, had a fossil in it. And that fossil, um, you know, was really excited all of us. It's something we found in the Arctic a number of years ago. Wow! How did you make the decision to scan it? Well, it had some. It had a. It had some scales on the top that suggested it was like a tiktaalik-like creature. And so we scanned inside and, you know, you can kind of guess what we found inside. That's cool. That's really cool. So it's almost probably some of the fact that you, like, I guess maybe that's just, I don't know if I'm right about this, but it's like a little bit of a silver lining of COVID that you were able to focus on that. Oh yeah. I mean, I think, you know, when you talk to people, you know, COVID, COVID is definitely a negative, <laughs> but there are sort of like little island positives for different people. Um, I'm sure some people probably had zero islands, so I'd be mindful of that. But for me, there were some pockets of, of you know, of positive, if you can call it that. And, and certainly that was a piece. They certainly kept us sane during the lockdown, let's put it that way. Um, another element of your work, which is kind of different from all of these discovery aspects, and but equally like human, deeply human, is that you visited and worked with people who are affected by illnesses and disorders whose origins offer proof of our evolutionary past. And I'm wondering about how those interactions have changed the way that you engage with your work. Well, in the context, so I mean, you're referring to like people I've talked to who have sort of extra fingers and toes or digital anomalies. They have mutations and genes that are involved with their evolution. And I think, you know, I gotta say um, almost universally the people we talk to um, the families and the individuals have been very open and very sharing. I mean, my experience is if you, if you tell them, you know, what you're doing and why, um, they get curious, you know, and they're glad to help, you know. Um, and so, yeah, I can spend, that's been a uniform positive as well. I mean, it's so fascinating. Number one, it's fascinating for anyone. But then I feel like for someone who is learning about this, who can connect it to like something that I might have always wondered about on a personal level, that must be enlightening and also kind of empowering. So have you kind of felt that when you've been, you know, sharing that with people, learning from people, kind of this like rewarding element to it? Oh yeah, I know it's empowering for them. I mean, certainly, I mean, one of the things you're probably referring to is where in the TV show, You're in a Fish, we, you know, interviewed a child who had six fingers and it had a particular mutation and a very important gene. And in that case, you know, the family was so open and they were so curious. Um, and I think it was empowering for them 
to learn more about the genetic basis of the, of the condition. Um, and it was empowering for me too, to see how well, how they're, how they get along and how they deal and their curiosity, you know? So it was, I think it was very reciprocal. Yeah. And it, it speaks to the importance in ways that you wouldn't even initially think of understanding our evolutionary past. And I guess this is a random ish question, but so back and forth, like there are scientific theories that are contested and this isn't one that's contested very often, but there does exist a debate around evolution itself. And I wonder what you make of people who think evolution is a hoax. Well, we have people who think COVID-19 is a hoax. So, I mean, you know, and I mean, so it's like, there are people who you're never going to convince who are, you know, have complete distrust in, in institutions um, and then quote experts. And um, you're never going to convince those. So they're not the people I'm trying to talk to. The people I try to talk to, the people who are convincible or are open to discussion and open to, you know, thinking about it. And you, so you have to choose who you're going to communicate to and how. Yeah, I mean, given, so it's interesting because it's a challenge to to engage with certain audiences, um, but there's kind of a spectrum of some people who maybe can be swayed, some people who can't. I wonder what you find more difficult, writing popular science novels, which are bereft of jargon and they're filled with stories, or um, kind of a totally different, or maybe I'm wrong, maybe it's more similar than I think, but a different experience nonetheless, just writing rigorous academic papers. What's harder? Oh, the pop, the pop science is much harder because there are really kind of no rules to it. And I have to work it a lot to make it right. It doesn't come right the first time. Um, yeah, that's definitely harder. But that's what I, that's why I like it so much, right? It's, it's fun that way because I like solving those, those problems. My best friend right now, she's pre-med and she does, um, you know, she's like doing science research and also talking to a bunch of people who do their own research. And she always talks about how you know that someone knows what they're doing, not when they can like throw around a bunch of fancy words when they describe what they're doing in their lab, but when they can actually just explain it really simply to someone who doesn't know the first thing about science. And I feel like that's a similar thing here where the biggest challenge is just like, how do I communicate this as simply as possible? And when you do that, that's how you know you have a grasp on it. Oh yeah, I mean, no, no, it takes, I mean, it takes a while to get to that point, even with things you know very well. And probably especially, things you know very well because you're more likely to cut corners in, the, in telling the story about about things you know really well um because you, you just you know we all have blind spots and you have blind spots about you know things you know the best yeah and so this is my, my final question but just what impact do you hope that this work you know unpacking these evolutionary realities your stories and sharing them with the general public who do you hope it impacts and what do you hope that that mark is well, I want to inspire people. I want to inspire people to learn more about their world. I want to inspire people to learn about how others have learned about the world. And so the more we can inspire other people to discover, to explore, and to learn more about their worlds and themselves, the better we're doing. And that's, that's my goal. Well, I think you're doing that. I think so for everyone listening, I was in a class that read your inner fish, Dr. Schumann's, one of his books. And I think the whole classroom was inspired and moved. So I think you're doing just that. So thanks again for having this conversation and um, really happy to have you here. Thanks so much. Good to be on. Thank you so much to Dr. Neil Shubin for joining us today. 
Now it's time for a few words from our contributing commentator and co-host, Mabel Chan of One in a Billion, our production partner and sponsor of Where Are They Now? Thank you, Gemma. Wow, what a fantastic glimpse into the mind of a genius who knows the rules of the game. I admire Dr. Shubin's mindset and some useful words to keep himself honest and motivated. And I quote, I had insecurity sitting on my shoulder the whole time, end quote. And quote, I tend to learn more from failures than successes. You know, successes, you pat yourself on the back and you kind of done. Failures, you're still hungry, end quote. So the sobering lessons that I draw from Dr. Shubin's approach to his work are the following. Bring it home. The gem is hidden, is always hidden, but you'll find it. Give it time. Be patient. These lessons from this interview reveal a practical, spiritual, and disciplined philosophy of a first-rate geoscientist, world traveler, and writer. Dr. Shubin's fascination with tracing the evolutionary origins of mammals, connecting the dots, and sharing his findings with a wider audience is the fuel for all his expeditions to far-flung places. And I think that drive isn't something that can be taught. It is something that can be triggered. Remember he said what captivated his attention early on in his childhood? It was astronomy, geology, archaeology, anthropology, all these ologies. The common thread there is the study of objects and creatures that are foreign and far away, in the sky, in the ocean, in the rocks, or in a completely different country and culture. These faraway objects in dangerous places aren't the ultimate purpose of his chase. They are part of the thrill, yes, and they are part of the process. But those are the means to an end. The end game for him is impact. He said he wanted to inspire people like you and me to look at the world around us differently, to learn more about it. And in the process of learning about the world out there, we'll learn more about ourselves and what we're made of or capable of. So what is it that rings your chimes or sets your imagination on fire? Obviously, we're not wired the same way, and we don't have to go far and wide to find our North Star. We only need to heed those moments that trigger our curiosity or our wonder. Personally, it came to me right in the comfort of my own home in Hong Kong when I was just a teenager. Sitting in front of my TV set with my dad one day in Hong Kong, I was completely captivated by a blonde woman working with two men, black and white. They were all part of a detective team working to solve a murder case. Is TV, is a drama, is not real. But to me, it felt real. The cops had to find a killer behind this gruesome murder. They ran out of leads until they ran into a woman reporter who'd helped them track down a key witness. That led to a breakthrough. It was that woman reporter who'd made the biggest difference in the investigation. She was the hero. And in my teenage mind, that was enough. I wanted to be like her, a hero, someone who can make a difference in the world, seeking justice, reporting the truth, or solving a mystery. Those light bulb moments will come to you as well when you keep looking and stay hungry to bring your brains and bravery to the world. Just like Dr. Shubin, you will also learn to say, 
quote, I had insecurity sitting on my shoulder the whole time, end quote. But that doesn't matter. Quote, maybe there's something else in my future, end quote. Be patient. Be a good traveler who's not too eager to arrive. Let your life reveal itself to you. If you have an interesting discovery as a student or an alumni, send us your story. I love comments and feedback. This has been Where Are They Now? Produced by myself, Gemma Schneider at WHRB News in Cambridge in collaboration with One in a Billion Productions with Mabel Chan. The music for our show was created by Dash Chin of WHRB News. You can also learn more about our podcast partner and sponsor, One in a Billion Productions, by checking out oneinabillionvoices.org or Mabel's podcast, One in a Billion, an interview show about Asian culture and society, one person at a time on Apple iTunes, PRX, or SoundCloud. Thank you again for listening to this week's episode of Where Are They Now? Tune in for another episode of Where Are They Now? on WHRB 95.3 FM at the same time next week, same place. In the meantime, learn more about our podcast and catch up on old episodes by visiting our website, whrb.org. You can also find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or PRX. 